Hello again, everybody. This is Pete Worrell from Bigelow, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the Positive Enterprise Value Podcast. You know, for 30 years or more, I've had the fun of meeting with thousands of seasoned, successful private business owners and working closely with hundreds of them. They are almost, without exception, the most kind, generous, challenging, demanding, creative people you could ever imagine. In this podcast, I interview some of the most high-performing and successful entrepreneur owner-managers, both from the for-profit and the not-for-profit sector. Today, I'm interviewing uh, Jennifer A. Grossman, who goes by the nickname JAG, those are her initials, uh, who is the president and CEO of the Atlas Society, which is a large not-for-profit, which um, has been uh, distributed, has been remote all of its life. I think uh, JAG lives in Malibu and travels so extensively, I'm not sure that she would say they have a headquarters any, every, anywhere. Uh, as you might have guessed from the name, the Atlas Society, which is um, drawn from the book Atlas Shrugged, the uh, fantastic novel by Ayn Rand, the Atlas Society um, sort of celebrates the remarkable potential and power of the individual. Um, and uh, it uh, promotes learning about um, the capitalist system uh, juxtaposed against the other kinds of systems in the world so that young people particularly can make in informed choices about which is the kind of system they want to live in and whether they're willing to uh, make the decisions that allow them to be successful in a capitalist society. This comes home to me because I just had a discussion yesterday with a good friend of mine who uh, is a uh, young professional who uh, sort of made a disparaging remark about, you know, as everyone knows, in the capitalist society, blah, blah, blah. And I listened to him and I said, Jonas, I don't think you're talking about the capitalist system. I think you're talking about the corporatist system that... You know, early on in um, the 20th century, there were great entrepreneurial things happening coming out of the first industrial revolution. But even in the 1905 and 1920 time frame, you had thinkers like um, Albert Einstein, you know, um, uh, playing with the general theory of relativity or uh, Gertrude Stein writing in uh, salons in Paris at the same time that Pablo Picasso was painting there, and they're very entrepreneurial. These were not bureaucrats. And they, um, there was something interesting happening at that time. And then, of course, um, with the advent of World War One, and then World War Two, and in between the Spanish influenza, there was the emergence of a very top-down hierarchical culture, which crushed a lot of that entrepreneurial spirit for nearly a hundred years. And I think we're back there now, but um, I'm not sure. But sometimes our mass popular culture and even the media confuses the uh, what is really a capitalist society, which I would view as being bottom-up, entrepreneur-driven, with the corporatist society, which I'm very disgusted with, which is top-down and bureaucratic and, and filled with people who are not principals and don't have skin in the game. So sorry for the long introduction, because Jag is going to get into this uh, very uh, clearly. Uh, she's a fabulously interesting person who, after an Ivy League education at Harvard, spent time at the White House as a speechwriter. She also spent time in the private sector 
I think it was for uh, Dole, the food company, and has also uh, advised other for-profit and not-for-profit entities. I think she's been with Atlas about six or seven years. She's made enormous transformative changes there, uh, moving their curriculum uh, to uh, focus a lot of resources on young people and uh, is very open and candid about her challenges in doing so. Uh, over the last uh, few years, and I think you'll really enjoy hearing her. So without uh, further delay, here's my interview with Jennifer A. Grossman, JAG. So, JAG, let me ask you, so like, let's just start with some context. Like, um, where did you grow up? What did you study? Um, trying to figure out how did you get from there to here? Sure. Well, I'm a Peace Corps baby. Um, uh-huh. My parents... Uh, had eloped because they were from two different religious uh, backgrounds and um, they eloped, they got married and they decided they wanted, they were Kennedy Democrats and very inspired by um, this call to help others. And so they uh, went off to the Peace Corps in India. My mother uh, was pregnant and I was born there soon thereafter, hence the middle name Anju. Um, And uh, then came back, went to public schools, um, eventually went to Harvard and studied government. um, And after graduation came to the government town, Washington, DC. Uh, and after working at an ABC affiliate, I eventually got a job as a speechwriter in the first Bush administration, worked my way up to being a speechwriter. And um, after that, you know, kind of remained in the policy and the political world. Um, I was uh, the uh, director of education policy at the Cato Institute. And then I also had the privilege to work for many years for uh, the late Ted Forstman, the founder of Forstman Little, and he was one of the great pioneers of the leveraged buyout. And um, I worked with him on his philanthropy, in particular with regards to um, choice and education. Um, And then I, uh, again, through the political world, um, had met David Murdoch, who um, is the owner of Dole Food Company, legendary um, entrepreneur in his own right. And uh, he hired me to start a nutrition institute for him out here in Southern California at Dole Food Company. So I did that for about 12 years. And, um, and then after that, I was in a position to do something that was really more near and dear to my heart. And so when um, the... trustees, the board of the Atlas Society, they were looking for new leadership. Um, They had heard about the crazy Ayn Rand lady who lives up on a cliff in Malibu with her Ayn Rand license plate and approached me. And um, it was, I don't know, I guess you could call it a bit of a distressed property at the time. I mean, it, it was a wonderful organization, but it needed a refresh and that's my specialty. So, um, so I did that and brought it in, took it in a more artistic direction, uh, also leveraged social media, which is something that I had seen um, a lot of the legacy properties in the think tank space um, really weren't taking advantage of it. And, uh, you know, in the think tank space, 
it's an idea business. You're transacting ideas and uh, social media is a, is a demonetized, dematerialized um, platform for, for transacting ideas. And, um, and so we've now been able to uh, achieve dominance in terms of the kind of engagement that we get with our content on social media. Every piece of content gets an average of 23,000 comments, likes, engagements. And so, um, so that's a real portal for us to start in, inviting uh, people on a customer journey of deeper learning about Ayn Rand, her ideas, her literature. Well, so I have so many uh, questions that come out of that. First of all, um, you were reading Enterprise Value. I don't know if you chuckled when you saw the story about, I think I called him Ted in the book, who left the Peace Corps and started a consulting firm. Ted left the Peace Corps and was disillusioned that he couldn't find things to do in North America that gave him as much sense of meaning and purpose as his Peace Corps work did. And so he actually founded a large, what is now a large consulting firm, which consults in the areas of environment, water, agriculture, democracy, to, to developing countries through uh, USAID and World Bank and has developed, you know, a thousand person firm from doing that, trying to sort of re, uh, reignite his, his Peace Corps uh, passion. But when when did you fall in love with Ayn Rand and, and why was that? How was that? Um, I actually came to Ayn Rand kind of late. I feel that I was primed to uh, really fall in love with her ideas and her literature by some of the experiences that I had in um, the government school system. Um, I was uh, I was bullied not for having a lisp or being obese or you know being some kind of uh, marginalized person. I was bullied for um, excelling and for um, dressing well and for being bright. And so I, I think back then I, I started to, uh, and, and I, I remember I would go to these girls who were, you know, they had their I hate JAG club and put me on trial for being conceited. And I'd go to them and I'd say, well, what, what can I do to appease you? What can I do to placate you? What you know, what can I do to make you go away? And they said, well, you can kill yourself. And so um, I I thought, well, of course, I'm not going to do that. I love my life and um, generally a happy person. Uh, but that is an as essential kind of core of one of Ayn Rand's ideas when she talks about envy as the hatred of the good for being good. And so um, I, I think that also then seeing what was happening in society where uh, entrepreneurs, successful people were being um, torn down, criticized. Um, they were attacked for being greedy, but uh, they were providing tremendous value. I mean, all of the incredible stories in your book about these um, these businesses that, that uh, in many cases, family businesses and, and how hard people worked and how emotionally invested that they got with their, um, their, their companies. And to me, you know, that was like Dagny Taggart all over yes. again, because she was, you know, she, she was kind of like the, the people that you write about. She uh, was so, um, attached to her company and with what she was doing and with the technologies involved, 
um, that that even though uh, you know there was this government overreach and encroachment and um, and her brother taking advantage of her and the government taking advantage of her that she she couldn't quite let it go. So um, so yeah, I I read I was at the Cato Institute. People were around the water cooler and they uh, I heard somebody say. Who is John Galt? And I said, Yeah, who is John Galt? And they thought I was in on the gag, but I really yeah. didn't know. And so they said, We're not quite sure how you got in the door, but uh, we're going to advise that you go home and read this and don't come back until you have. And I did, and I read it in, in just a, a matter of days. I couldn't put it down. And I went on to read absolutely everything. Her fiction, nonfiction, newsletters, speeches. Uh, and yeah, it just really fit for me, um, not just because of those early experiences, but I also think that she uh, has a lot to offer women in particular, um, not just as a role model of uh, a self-made woman who came to this country just a few years after women had um, Received the right to to vote in elections, uh, but somebody who broke through glass ceilings ne- never really thought about it, and and yet she wrote uh, these incredibly strong female characters: Kira Argunova in *We the Living*, Dominique Francon in *The Fountainhead*, and of course the quintessential Dagny Tagger, who I understand has special significance for you as well. She does, yeah. <laughs> As I mentioned to you, Dagny Taggart is the name of a holding company that a real estate partner and I uh, operate. And um, I may have mentioned to you, actually, in that spirit, our, uh, we don't really uh, advertise this, but in that spirit, uh, that business is owned by women. It's run by women, including having a woman banker and a woman construction manager and a woman architect and a woman everything else just to, to try to um, walk the walk, you know. So. Oh, I like it. I like it. Well, and that that kind of feels like uh, who we are at the Atlas Society too. Um, in terms of our small staff, we're, we're uh, other than I think we're starting to branch out. We're not, you know, picking people based on their gender, but uh, but we we are uh, mostly women staffed. Um, I'd like a few more female board members and members of our faculty, but that'll come in time. So um, you you said you when you went to government school, I think you met, does that mean K through 12 school? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it sounds like, and just knowing you a little bit, I bet you did well there. And yet you, um, you describe in some ways uh, uh, not being able to or not being willing to conform. And that's like a lot of our friends who are entrepreneurs who just don't feel the need to, to do that. You're an independent critical thinker, and you uh, came out of uh, uh, secondary school, and you went to Harvard, and you went into the government. So that strikes me as a curious place to go. And so, did you have a uh, a in your mind a passion to uh, achieve a particular destination? And if so, what was that? Um, well, I well, I had uh, majored in government um, with, with a minor in Middle Eastern affairs, actually, and I took uh, five years of Arabic, and I was um, 
pretty fluent at the time. And I had thought I would uh, also go into the foreign service or, you know, into the intelligence services, um, following my parents' footsteps. But uh, I, you know, once I, the more I learned about that career path, the less, um, the less interesting it seemed to me, although, I, you know, I, I do wonder if in a parallel universe, what that whole career path might have looked like. Um, but, you know, my career actually felt very chaotic to me because it was like, oh, okay, I'm in television. Now I'm in speech writing. And now I'm uh, running a think tank. You know, now I'm at a think tank. And, and now I'm um, at a food company. And so it's like, I just didn't feel like I had a, a standard linear um, career path. But in retrospect, I felt that doing so many different tasks from, you know, television commentary to writing to editing um, to uh, starting a nutrition institute um, that I had experience sort of playing a lot of different instruments. And that was a kind of a good preparation for, for leadership because now um, when I'm at an organization and I'm running an organization like I'm doing now, I can pick up any of the roles. You know, if, if somebody, uh, if we're down a person, I can either take that on, but I can also mentor um, the staff and, and teach them how to become better in their individual roles because of, I've done them before. And, and did you feel if you, in retrospect, if you look over your shoulder, do you feel like there was a common thread as you went through that part that journey? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that I always wanted to help people lead healthier, uh, more actualized lives. So whether, you know, it was the 12 years at Dole Food Company and finding ways to um, provide people with the knowledge they needed about the nutrients um, that could help them be healthier and avoid disease and, and um, exercise and that kind of thing uh, is, is sort of a flip side to what I'm doing now. It, rather than um, teaching people about nutrition and the nutrients they need, teaching people about philosophy and the virtues that they need in order to, uh, to live more productive, um, flourishing lives. So I, I think that there is a bit of, you know, idealism that runs through all the way from, you know, my, my parents. Um, and even though uh, politically I'm pretty, I'm kind of the black sheep of the family and, and, and have a different uh, perspective on current events and politics than my parents, um, I think they still see what I'm doing as kind of a continuation of, um, of the ethos in which they, they brought me up because I find it very, very fulfilling. So I'm not doing it to give back because I didn't take anything away. Over the course of my career, I've, I've added value. Um, I'm, I'm doing it because it just lights my fire when I, you know, I'm able to go to a student conference and talk to a young person who's, who's never heard about Ayn Rand and um, introduce them to it you know, maybe to give them our pocket guide to objectivism or, you know, one of our graphic novels. 
and uh, and then see that uh, they they'll see them next year and they'll say, oh my God, I read this essay five times, changed my life, and that's great. Um, yeah. It's just yeah, it's really fulfilling. That's great. So it, I, I see that same thread you say you mentioned. Uh, you know, I also see a thread as almost an educator. Mm-hmm. Did you ever think about being a Peace Corps volunteer? No, no, um, be, because I, I kind of feel that um, this this approach, this this foreign aid approach that we're you know there to teach people uh, about how to, to to lead their lives differently. I mean, I think the the best thing that we can do is to um, to fight for greater um, political reforms uh, or, you know, work with people to, to encourage uh, the rule of law, um, property rights, respect for contracts, uh, you know, and, and that that's what's really going to be able to help people to um, to move ahead in countries like that. I mean, my, I, I work a lot with Venezuela because we've become increasingly international. Um, it, it started by translating a few of our um, our videos, and even though each one of our videos gets an average of a million views here in the United States, I translate some of them, and they would get many multiples of that in foreign languages. So, for example, Chip Wilson is the founder of Lululemon, and uh, a big supporter of ours, previous honoree at one of our galas, and uh, he helped fund a project that we took the Draw My Life. My name is is uh, Chip Wilson, and we translated it into about a dozen languages. And in Arabic, it got 8 million views. You know? wow. so, so then we started to discover these different markets. Um, and in terms of our Spanish language content, I was really surprised to find that Venezuela was um, one of our biggest markets, um, despite the fact that, you know, I think a third of the country has left. Um, despite the fact that they have uh, um, electricity outages every single day. But um, I think the, the people there are living through the, the, the late stages of, of Atlas Shrugged, and um, they, they understand uh, much better than, unfortunately, a lot of people here in the United States, that um, central planning, redistribution, um, and uh, and socialism is is really poison. And so, uh, so while I'm not there in the countries, um, I am. I do feel that that we have we have a presence there. And again, like that was one of the things I also learned over the course of my career. You don't have to do everything. Like do one thing and do it well. Um, and uh, you know, this is what we're doing at the Atlas Society. We're not training activists. We're not changing, uh, you know, we're not lobbying for um, legal changes. We're focusing on providing young people with the philosophical framework that they need in order to uh, to be independent, you know, to think for themselves, um, to not cave to peer pressure, to not apologize for, uh, for, for who they are, um, because there's a lot of mind viruses going around right now um, of of envy, of uh, resentment, um, of identity politics, and uh, a lot of pressure for young people to conform. And so um, what we're trying to do is to inoculate 
them uh, with these ideas so that they can feel like, oh, you're going to call me names. You're going to call me a bigot, whatever. It doesn't matter. I know who I am. And, um, you know, as uh, Howard Rourke said to Tui in, in the Fountainhead when he was asked, you know, well, I've really got you and got you fired from all these jobs. You, no one's here. You can tell me, what do you think of me? And Howard Rourke says, actually, I don't, don't really think of you. So, um, so we, we want to be able to provide young people with that very, very, very liberating uh, orientation of like, you know, hey, you like me, you don't like me. Uh, it's, it's, it's not going to make much of a difference, which, which isn't to say that, that we, we are saying um, you know, be arrogant or, or don't think of, of, of uh, you know, be insensitive to what other people think in order to be an entrepreneur, whether it's an entrepreneur in business or it's an entrepreneur in spreading ideas, um, you, you have to be benevolent. You have to have a benevolent orientation, which is like, hey, you know, I'm interested in what you have to say. I have some ideas that may be a benefit to you, but you're looking for those kinds of connections, which is very different than saying, I have the truth and I'm going to impose it upon you. And so what, Jag, what um, fuels your passion for teaching this? Uh, well, I, I think it's been what I, how important it's been in my own life, how it's helped me to get through crises, um, losing things, you know, whether it's my house burning down and having to start over, um, losing relationships, losing jobs, you know, what, whatever it might be, uh, to really build up my inner resources and, um, feel confident, uh, that, you know, if something is thrown at me, even if I don't know how to do it, I'll, I will figure it out. So I think it's given me a lot of confidence to know that I can pretty much, you know, do pretty much anything. I'll do some things better than others because of aptitude and experience, but I can figure it out. Um, and then just also uh, really not not caring, not being consumed with, with people disliking me or criticizing me. And, and that's been you know pretty important in terms of my work at the Atlas Society because uh, we are kind of the uncola of objectivism. Uh, we're not kind of the establishment brand. We have a very kind of risk-taking culture, uh, which means we make a lot more mistakes than your average think tank um, because we are running a lot more experiments. Um, but it's that orientation that I think has helped us to succeed. So that um, just just knowing what it's done for me, I also have a tremendous amount of gratitude, not just for... Um, for Ayn Rand. So I kind of feel like I have a bit of a debt to repay to her um, because I want to actually give back to her because I've received so much. But then also our board of trustees, I mean, these are just outstanding individuals. They've invested not just treasure, but a lot of time in our, our organization. So I feel um, I really want to uh, to exceed their expectations. And um, and then, yeah, I know that, as Ayn Rand said, the, uh, that the creative man is not motivated 
by competing with others, but by achieving on one's own. But I am incredibly competitive. So, you know, maybe I still have a, a long way to go to, uh, to buff up my objectivist virtues, but I am competitive. And so um, I love just kind of seeing how we're doing, measuring uh, us against other uh, organizations' performance. And, you know, part of it isn't just about beating the other guy. It's about providing superior value to our investors, right? right. So uh, these are you know, philanthropic people. They care about these ideas. They care about Ayn Rand. They care about um, young people and liberty. And um, But they have a lot of choices, right? And so I don't take for granted that they, you know, that I'm, I'm entitled to their support. Not right. at all. Uh, and so I really take very seriously. I have to make the case and I say, hey, if you give us a, a dollar, um, this is what we'll do. Th these are the kinds of results. Here's the leaderboard. Here's um, how we're doing in this particular thing compared to your other uh, options. And I, th I think that's an important case for support. And remind me, how long have you been with the Atlas Society now? Um, I'm a baby. I've just been here for a little over six years. And, and uh, what, what was the uh, foundational story of the Atlas Society? How did it get founded? Well, that's a really good question. So um, I think I referred earlier to kind of this objectivist establishment. And, you know, it, this is perhaps kind of a bit of a natural life cycle for organizations that, that get started around a personality. So when Ayn Rand died, um, there was an organization that was set up um, to manage the, um, the intellectual properties and, and also to uh, continue to proselytize and let people know about her ideas. Um, but it it was pretty dogmatic and it would, uh, and it, and it was pretty rigid, you know, it was like, you, this is the way that you have to approach the ideas. you you can't, um, you can't deal with conservatives. You can't deal with libertarians, you know, that you, that's, that's the wrong approach. Um, of course, there was also this whole terrible split that happened within, um, the objectivist, community um, because of this split between Ayn Rand and her protege, Nathaniel Brandon. So that kind of complicated things. And the real rising star within uh, objectivist circles at the time was this Princeton-trained philosopher named David Kelly, who spoke at both Ayn Rand's funeral and um, and her, husband, her late husband, Frank O'Connor's funeral. Um, but, uh, you know, he was a pretty independent-minded thinker, and he would go and talk to whoever he wanted. He wasn't waiting for permission, and, um, and he kind of ran afoul of, uh, of, of the establishment. And so he became one of the many people along the way who were excommunicated and defenestrated. And um, so he went off to start his own independent organization and... So he's still on our board of trustees and uh, he's officially retired, but he still um, contributes to the organization and provides guidance. So um, so that's kind of the origin story of the Atlas Society. And then um, I really wanted to take it in a pretty 
different direction um, rather than providing, um, I always say with charities um, and nonprofits, there's two kinds of models. There is um, the soup kitchen model where you are paying, you know, donors pay, they're not necessarily consuming the soup, but they want people to be fed. So that's the way they do it. And then there's kind of the opera model where donors um, are supporting the opera, but they're largely the consumers of, of the opera as well. And I think that the outside was a little bit more in that latter category because people that were supporting it were also the consumers of its content, its, its summer programs, for example. Um, and I've shifted pretty you know, significantly to another model in which I say, okay, here's the value proposition. It's not necessarily that you're going to get to go to a summer conference with a bunch of other objectivists. It's that we are going to be very effective um, at connecting young people with these ideas that were so important to you. We're going to be able to make that case to you. We're going to be able to prove it with metrics, uh, comparative metrics. And, you know, so that was a bit of a rough transition because, you know, some people were used to a different way of doing things. Um, and also, I just said, we're, we're going to focus on uh, young people, 15 to, you know, uh, 20s, and um, we're going to make a sociological study of the kinds of content that they are consuming. And in a lot of cases, they're quite different than the kind of uh, content that our donors would be consuming or even find, you know, appealing. So, um, so it's a bit of a balancing act. Fortunately, because of uh, the, our growth in the past few years, I've been able to kind of go back and add a bit more of a hybrid um approach so that we now have so much content and programming for our donors. It's not just our gala. We have three clubhouse chats a week um, and just a, a lot of ways that, you know, uh, people who are older students of objectivism um, can continue to really get a lot of value. So, so it's been, it's been good. Do you have, um, a view of what you think the Atlas Society's destination under your leadership should be? What I'd like it to be is I'd like it to be sustainable. I, I want um, people to feel comfortable, and they have been increasingly. Um, we're, we're starting to get legacy commitments so that they understand that this is an organization. If, if JAG gets hit by a bus tomorrow, uh, the Atlas Society is going to continue on. Um, and, uh, and so I, I want to make sure that we have um, programming and also personnel in place uh, that can be continued long after, you know, I'm gone. Um, so that's important. Uh, I would like to take on some bigger projects. Um, we, we have some exciting uh, proposals that have been fleshed out. Uh, for for example, um, the last documentary on Ayn Rand, really the first and last documentary on Ayn Rand was uh, over 20 years ago. So a lot has changed in the documentary space. Um, so we have a project that would would be a documentary that would be more of a, a kind of animated treatment. So using artwork that changes through different periods of, of her life. And that's kind of more in our wheelhouse. I'd love to see a big project like that. Um, 
we're, we're working on our third graphic novel, which uh, is based on notes that Ayn Rand did on her uh, on a screenplay about the Manhattan Project and the making of the atom bomb. You know, our first two graphic novels, one was on Anthem, uh, and then the second one was on Red Pawn, which was a, a script that Ayn Rand had sold. Um, and so, um, but I, you know, these graphic novels, we've, we've distributed hundreds of thousands of copies of them, and they're very popular. So um, I'd love to take on a graphic novel of We the Living. And even though that won't be available in terms of copyright for at least 10 years, um, well, maybe it's eight years. Anyway, around that, uh, we, we could get started now. But it would be a huge multi-year um, project and it would take a big investment. And then finally, I'm just really excited about uh, this growth in, in these um, in these other countries. And uh, I'd love to, um, we, we had started a sister organization, Sociedad Atlas, and recruited staff for that. So it duplicates a lot of what we do, but they, it does it in Latin America. Um, I could, you know, see particularly if we, we got uh, an entrepreneur that was very interested in it to do the same, let's say for India and, um, and maybe even the Middle East, because I've been surprised by, um, by the great engagement that we're getting there. So that would be that would be a, a nice way to expand. So it sounds like you have a pretty full plate and <laughs> you have a lot uh, that you're thinking about doing. And my experience with entrepreneurs like you is that really um, to be dramatic, I'll say 90% of the challenges facing us are, are psychological challenges, especially for people who have sustained success over a long period of time in their careers. I mean, a lot of people can work hard for a year or two but to be successful for 20 years takes a certain mindset. Mm -hmm. and, you know, one of the things about sustaining that is uh, to have a tremendous amount of self-care. And um, when you start playing that deeper game, like you're talking about, is when you people typically need to put in physical practices or meditative practices. Some people uh, practice yoga, some people work out, some people are meditators. Um, Maybe it just means moving your body in some way. Mm -hmm. What have you been doing in your workout routine that helps you to continue to have this sustained energy that you need to be a, a leader and bring this organization into success? Well, exercise is very important to me. Um, I exercise a minimum of six days a week. Um, I belong to a beautiful club here in Malibu, which is outdoors and um, beautifully, beautifully designed uh, and uh, I take classes there, yoga classes, fitness classes, spin classes. Um, I think it's also important, you know, each of us get fed in different ways, right? We're not all the same. And for me, it is, um, is, is have being surrounded by beauty, both just, you know, beautiful surroundings or natural beauty. So being in Malibu is, is a, <laughs> deeply important to me. I do have to do quite a bit of traveling for my job, um, but, but coming back to Malibu and just reconnecting with the natural beauty is, um, is really very, very important to me. And then, um, you know, even finding community. So uh, even though I um, do not believe in the supernatural and my epistemology is firmly grounded in uh, reason rather than faith. I, I do enjoy being a part of, of a religious community. And so 
Um, I'm a member of my local Chabad and um, nobody grills me on, you know, religion, but welcoming. And so it's, it's something that, that uh, is also um, a way to recharge and, and even find people who want to support the Atlas Society. I found a, a huge uh, donor, um, somebody who had met Ayn Rand and, and uh, listened to her speak. Who knew that I would find him at my local Chabad, but I did. And, and so many um, successful uh, leaders and entrepreneurs uh, have that similar story, right? When you're talking about getting rejuvenated, my wife calls it repleted. I say I'm depleted and she said, you need to get repleted. And the way I get repleted and many of us do is in nature, right? But um, have, do you have a way to do that? In other words, do you have a, a routine where you, uh, you live in Malibu and if you happen to be there, you can do certain things there, but do you have a routine where you get away or do you have a routine where you like try to put all of this behind you and uh, go on a meditative retreat or anything like that? No, you know, I'm just not a big vacation person. I'm not a big weekend person. Um, I, I do get adequate sleep, but I love what I do. It is not a job to me. It is, um, it is a deeply meaningful calling. It's a privilege. Um, and, uh, and I just, you know, find it tremendously rewarding. So, I, you know, I, it, so it's one of my pet peeves when people say, oh, thank God it's Friday. I'm like, no. you're not my kind of person. To no. me, I'm a thank God it's Monday. Mondays are my best day. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I guess occasionally this coming weekend, I will be doing the annual fly fishing, uh, one of the annual fly fishing weekends with my family um, up on the Truckee River. So nice. Nice. You know, I'm a sailor. My wife and I are sailors, cruising sailors. And I spent a couple hours on the water yesterday and um, she remarked that I had had the change of temperament doing that. And and I remarked to myself that, you know, when I'm away on the water like that, and of course, if you are sailing a boat, you are navigating, you're using the skill of actually sailing against the wind. Mm -hmm. You're um, having to accommodate yourself to mother nature instead of the other way around and which i find i can do that for two or three hours and come back and feel like i've been away like so it's it's great to be able to have those kinds of things you you talk about work life and you know weekends and mondays so many people have said to me uh, about talked about the importance of work-life balance and you'll probably laugh but i say work-life balance schmalance yeah. It's not work-life balance. Work-life balance actually sets up a dichotomy between work and life. Just the question does, which is just an error, right? It's a philosophical error. I ask about work-life integration, mm -hmm. right? Can you bring your integration of your your non, your family life into your work life? And it sounds like you've been able to do that successfully. Uh, it certainly helps to um, to have this remote work uh, distribution that we have at the Atlas Society. That was one of the first things I did. I was, looked at the offices, the headquarters we had in DC and like, no, 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 not, not a good idea. And it, it, it's, it's hard. It took a, a, you know, a couple of years to find the right mix of people who were um, well suited to working remotely. But I feel like we have a pretty cohesive team 
And uh, and just even the other day, I found out that the, uh, the the woman who's I consider her kind of the glue that holds everything together at the Atlas Society, unbelievable project management, time management skills. Uh, it's going to have her second baby that she wasn't expecting. Um, but uh, you know, um, she's so good and she's so committed that she's like, yeah, I think um, maybe I'll need a month. <laughs> <laughs> but she's going to be pretty much working all the way through. Um, and so do you, do you have a place you call headquarters or are you sitting in it? it yeah, there is no headquarters. Um, but yeah, I guess maybe if there, there was one, it, it might be this, but um, you know, we have uh, almost 10 kind of full and part-time employees and some are in California, some are in Illinois, some are in Texas. Um, they're just all over the place. So, so let's pretend we go to sleep tonight and we wake up tomorrow and magically it's June 28th, 2025. So I'm not sitting here in 2022 asking you, Jag, what will you be working on in 2025? But rather we're here in 2025. You say, Pete, you remember that interview we did back in 2022? It's amazing. All these great things have happened in my life, personally and professionally since then. What's happened? Wow. Uh, let's see. I have uh, not just become fluent in Spanish, but also fluent in French and Portuguese. Um, we have uh, branches in all of those countries and um, are building our presence in the Middle East, uh, which is helping to contribute to world peace because we've, all, we've also uh, established a base in Israel. Um, I'd say uh, we are, we have a budget of $4 million <laughs> at the Atlas Society. Um, and, uh, and, and we've been able to um, uh, interest some huge, huge entrepreneurs and, and, and donors. Um, who, one of the richest men in Mexico is now uh, a big funder of our work. Um, and uh, I've, that I finally figured out how I can be using artificial intelligence to, um, to identify and secure investors uh, and students for our programming. Um, yeah. Is your and, that I, and that I'm five years younger than I was in, in 2022. Right. Your true age went down, right. Stem cell, you know, technology and what have you. <laughs> do you know, um, just as a quick aside, do you know um, the company Fountain Life? Yes, yeah. I heard about it. Are you, you said that you were a... Um, yeah, I'm an, I'm an investor in it mm -hmm. and a client of it. But it, a lot of the things that you're talking about, which I would generally characterize as building on strength as opposed to fixing weakness, mm -hmm. I think you'd find a lot of uh, just uh, typical uh, spirits with you in the Fountain Life uh, organization, the Fountain Life group. Yeah. So let me ask you, you know, in people who listen to this podcast are entrepreneurs. There's a lot of successful people, a lot of high achievers. You know, high performance is pretty common. I don't think all of them would describe themselves as highly fulfilled or as content. Would you describe yourself as content? I think so. You know, I just had, I had a dinner with a couple of, uh, I love to entertain, so I had a small dinner party for a bunch of girlfriends all around my age. 
and um, like hearing about panic attacks and crying spells and this and that and the other thing. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. That doesn't, don't sound have those. Like, doesn't sound like me at all. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty content. I'm, um, I, I don't have big highs and lows. I'm just kind of a pretty even keeled person. Um, and I, I've had, you know, as we all have had big losses and things that have gone wrong. And that's pretty good practice for, for things going wrong. So when things go wrong, it's like, hmm, all right, uh, you know, I could make a bad situation worse or I could start to dig ourselves out of this and and move on and just kind of having this sense that that time is, is flowing by. And, um, you know, even if you had a great embarrassment or something, um, it's, it's a year from now, people will be on to the next thing. And so not to get too wrapped up in, in anything that's happening right now um, and, and let it kind of, you know, impact your self-esteem and your confidence and your motivation. So you're in an unusual um, position of uh, looking from a mile high view for a moment at sort of kind of our country. And I'm thinking about, I sometimes reflect that our country seems like two countries. That, um, you know, I uh, neither, neither political party speaks for me. Um, I'm very independent minded and I travel uh, frequently across all parts of the country, particularly the middle part of the country, because of where our clients are. And I find that, as I sometimes come back from these trips, I find that, uh, as I'll say, wow, uh, in a pick a place, random, Muncie, Indiana, they sure do things differently than they do in New England. Mm-hmm. And they're successful too. And I'm super aware, maybe because of my travel and my friends, that uh, of different points of view and that how people can be successful with different points of view. And yet we have this country which right now is, you know, very, very polarized or it would appear that way if you listen to the media. What's your take on that? Yeah, I do think that there are uh, different ways of doing things successfully, um, but we also have ways of, of measuring you know, and uh, we had some very different approaches um, to to COVID and uh, different policies with regards to um, uh, basically uh, usurping property rights with regards to businesses yep. um, and uh, prioritizing some people over others. And we can see the results, right? We can see... Um, did that with education, you know, we can, we can take a look and, and see, all right, well, that's, this was an experiment. Um, and how, how did it work out? Right. I yeah. Don't... We closed our schools for this. Yeah. Like how did, how did that, that work out? Um, I think it's really important. For, we just completely, uh, lost sight of, of any kind of, um, thinking in terms of trade-offs and, and cost and benefit. And I understand the motivation for that because it's something that was really scary. Um, and so you, you kind of tend to like, well, then whatever it takes, this is the most important thing. Everything else doesn't matter. 
but everything else does matter, right? Right. And so, um, so we're we're able to see the the results of that. We're able to see which states are uh, people are moving away from, and which states people are moving into. You know, um, one of uh, our big donors, uh, Ken Griffin, just announced uh, that he was uh, taking Citadel, leaving Illinois, heading to Miami Beach. Um, so uh, I think that that is um, important. I, I do think that uh, Ayn Rand's ideas of reason and individualism um, and freedom are uh, more important than ever um, because, like you said, we're, we're seeing kind of uh, a, a resurgence of um, of changes happening within different states based on religious ideology. Um, and, and that is gonna be very difficult on um, women in, in, in those uh, states where um, they're, they're not going to have the right to be able to make decisions about whether or not to carry a pregnancy to term. Um, so, you know, I, I think that a return to reason and a return to um, a respect for uh, individual dignity and individual um, freedom is, is really important, uh, whether it's a question of uh, having bodily autonomy to resist um, the imposition of uh, experimental drugs um, or um, people, women having the right to, uh, to control their reproductive destinies. So, um, so yeah, but, you know, Ayn Rand has a wonderful quote in which she says, uh, you know, you can avoid and evade reality. You, you can't avoid the consequences of avoiding reality. And so, you know, at the end of the day, I, I think it's great that we have the, the, this federalism, um, you know, not sometimes not so great, but uh, depending on your point of view, but that we can we can have these experiments. And so it's like, well, if you want to keep taking this type of approach to regulation and um, at some point, you know, maybe you'll say, uh, wow, we're, we're losing a lot of business and we want to we might want to revisit how we're thinking about this. So um, but I, I do see a lot of silver linings in, in terms of what's happened, not just in terms of the acceleration of uh, techno technological innovation that happened in the past two years, but people voting with their feet, um, people, uh, parents being able to, to really have no choice but to see what, what uh, the quality and, and content of their children's education is and, um, and and making changes that better suit their needs. I think that's that's a positive. Yeah, it's it's a really uh, a brain teaser, isn't it? If um, people are waking up to those things that you just mentioned, and I wish it hadn't taken many mm -hmm. people so long, but um, so much so much destruction, so much so, so much needless. I don't. Even, I don't think we've seen the results of all of it yet. Really, really? No. no. Not on a personal psychological level. Yeah. Um, that the K through twelve system is a system that you know is uh, revered by Americans. Uh, I remember having a discussion with someone whom I respect a lot, and he is uh, in the education system, and I was chatting about uh, a charter school that I'm a supporter of. Mm -hmm. and, said to me, I don't see how you can be a supporter of charter schools because they're just 
taking away from the public school system. If there's enough charter schools, the public schools will never make it. And I thought, well, that's a point of view. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's a quite a lack of confidence in the quality uh, public of, schools. of the public schools. Yeah. yeah, and I think people lose sight of the fact that this country was founded on private education, that the, these government schools actually um, weren't imposed an, until much later. They were inspired by um, the Prussian model of um, government schooling and, and that in itself was um, was created to uh, to form good factory workers who would be able to take orders and to to uh, to form better soldiers who'd be able to take orders and so that kind of led to an experiment here in the United States but it's certainly not the system that our country was founded on um, and uh, I always believe that, you know, the consumer of the, the school needs to be um, the child and the parent and making making their best decisions for, for themselves. Um, and I think that we're going to be, you know, you just saw a law passed in Arizona, the kind of first full-fledged um, choice law uh, in, in the country. So I think that's going to be a harbinger of things to come. I think a lot of people, um, you know, we, we love our teachers. We, we, uh, we, we want our, our schools to succeed, but, um, I think the behavior of the, uh, the teachers unions and, yeah. um, how they showed themselves so willing to sacrifice the interests yeah. of children, I mean, the United States is, is the only country in the world that uh, that masked their children in this way. Um, and has people in the UK and even Europe scratching their heads and saying, why are you doing that to kids? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think that, that the teacher unions have kind of sacrificed um, longer term credibility for short term gains in terms of money and, you know. Like job perks. So. Yeah. so I'm aware that we're coming to the end of our time, but I have a couple of questions for you. Um, do someone like you with a very varied background, you've mentioned you've, you, you had, you've learned from some um, stubbing your toe. You didn't say the word failure, but maybe there were a few that were instructive along the way. Um, and you've developed a leadership style and a persona. Do you have any kryptonite? Is there something that's you that turns into an ultimate weakness for you in terms of an activity, mm. a person, or a location? Yeah, I, um, let me see. Well, the lockdowns were kryptonite for me. That that was um, I just uh, had a terrible time with them, and um, it, that. That was as close to to tonight as I came. I mean, I was so uh, demoralized that as somebody who is a lifelong, you know, seven days a week exerciser, I didn't exercise for a year. Yeah. And so that was a big, you know, impact on my health. And when I started again with my trainer, I mean, he was shocked by how much strength that I had lost. Um, So, you know, I I do think that uh, I developed some hacks and some tricks for uh, for dealing with that if it uh, the next round of monkeypox 
lockdowns or climate change lockdowns happen. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, I, I'm passionate. I'm just so really passionate about these issues. And I, I think it's sometimes to a fault, you know, I mean, really, it's, people don't want to talk about politics all the time. They don't want to talk about philosophy all the time. I do. <laughs> and so, uh, so fortunately I've, have a job that that allows me to do that but um but i, I think uh you know people can find that a little boring out in in the normal I, I think it's great i think it's great so here's my last question um what is one maybe uh misconception that people might have about you let's say people who even people who know you well that you think is a misunderstanding well that's a really good question i think that one is is one that I've kind of maybe you know I wouldn't say cultivated, but I find um, particularly in a competitive environment, being underestimated is a tremendous asset. And so um, you know I, because I don't feel like I need to go around proving people how smart I am. I, couldn't care less. And so to the extent that, you know, I'm um, a very feminine person, um, I don't mind making a fool out of myself, you know, like I, I'm sure I did with my Ayn Rand impersonations or, you know, my songs about Ayn Rand and all the silly kind of things that I've done. Uh, I, I think that people just don't think I'm that smart. They're, they, they, they are, they like, yeah, she's smart, but they don't actually have a, a good bead on what I'm packing. <laughs> so, uh, so that, um, that could, that could probably sometimes. So that's, so that's maybe a misconception, but it might also be, you might, you have used it as an asset in some ways. I think it's been a tremendous asset. Yeah. Because, um, people just will say, Oh, well, it's just that blonde bimbo out in Malibu and let's not pay any attention to her. She's not a PhD, you know, and I, I'm like, okay, then I'm just kind of quietly doing my thing. And then all of a sudden it's like, hello, how did that happen? <laughs> Our social media engagement is 20 times your social media engagement. Our videos are seen 50 times. More oh, there's that competitive streak coming out again. I know, I know. <laughs> so yeah, so, so I think uh, I think that there's, there's that. That would probably be one of the biggest... Um, the biggest misconceptions. Jack, I, I, want I want to do this interview. We're going to have to have you on uh, on the Atlas Society asks because I these are all really great great questions, and I'm very curious to to know the answers. I've got lots more, but I won't pepper you with them today. But I want to thank you so much for being with me on the Positive Enterprise Value Podcast uh, because I know people listening to it are going to it's going to make a big positive difference in their lives. And I also can assure you that there's no one who listens to this podcast who's going to underestimate you. <laughs> All right. Well, then uh, I won't try to, you know, get into a contest with them. I'll seek collaboration. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. We believe that entrepreneur owner managers are the most powerful pro-social and pro-economic force on the planet. And it's for that reason that we dedicate our firm, Bigelow, to working exclusively with them. At Positive Enterprise Value, we freely share our learning 
so that you can absorb from the experiences of other private business owners with skin in the game, just like you. Bigelow is widely regarded as the M&A advisor that deals exclusively with high-performing entrepreneur owner managers. Our scrappy independent boutique firm only offers one service, that is to help build and someday capture enterprise value. You can find all of the episodes on this podcast on Bigelow's website, which is bigelowllc.com.